Talk with Ben Tompkins. What's up, everybody? How you doing? This is Real Talk. I'm Ben Tompkins. We're presented by nobody currently, but with more interviews like this, that's all going to change one day. We just got to remain consistent, which is one of the toughest things to do, but we're doing it. We're sticking in the saddle, and every single Wednesday, no matter if it's Uber Stories, no matter if it's a special, or no matter if it is an interview like today's episode and an amazing guest like Jade Stanton, then we are going to have content for you on a Wednesday. Little hump day reward, right? You subscribe, you rate, and you review, and then you never miss an episode. So on Wednesdays, I can say happy hump day, everybody, and we can get over the hump together. Jade Stanton is my guest today, and Jade is a mental health coach and a mental health advocate, and you can find her work on her website, jadestanton.com. You can find her also on Instagram, at jadementalhealthcoach, and Jade's work revolves around borderline personality disorder, or BPD, and it sounds kind of frightening, it sounds kind of scary, but if you listen to the ways that we talk about this disease and this disorder and everything that's associated with it and the symptoms and how to get help and how to feel better, you know, I think only through conversations like this are we going to continue to normalize things like BPD or bipolar or any other mental health disorder that is out there. It's only through real talk and real conversations like this and people that are warriors, right, like Jade who suffers from BPD herself and then has dedicated her life into helping others and coaching others in ways that they can live a normal life and not let these things keep themselves from stable jobs and stable relationships and having hope. I mean, that's really, you're going to hear some of her, uh, her personal stories and experiences and struggles and her journey with BPD and feeling better and going from suicide attempts and not ever believing that she could have this life or this husband or uh, run her own business. Like these things are all possible. But, you know, for somebody that's dealing with a mental health disorder or that's seriously depressed or wherever they are in their journey, these things don't even feel like they could happen to us. We hear them discussed by other people. We see things happen for other people, but we can't envision that happening for us. But at some point, if you continue to um, dedicate yourself to doing self-work and whatever works for you, whether it's medication or talk therapy or finding what works for you, that's the bottom line. If you do that, then there is hope. And little by little, you will start to believe that for yourself and believe that you can live a normal life even despite having various mental health diseases. Just like anybody that had polio or diabetes or any of these other things, people can still live normal lives despite having various diseases. And so really, I I just, I admire people like Jade who not only are speaking about their experiences with their thing, whatever their thing is, and in this case, it's borderline personality disorder, but also that are doing it in a way that helps others and kind of is like, hey, guys, follow me. Like, this is the way, you know, this is what's working for me. And and sharing that journey is super helpful and it's super important. And so I just, anybody that, anybody that does that, I have the utmost respect for. So this episode is going to be about 
a little over an hour, and we go really deep on a lot of different stuff, um, defining BPD, uh, the medication regimen, how she first started to experience symptoms, and like what episodes are like. We talk about some of the kind of key hallmark symptoms of BPD, and like um, one of them that that I'm learning more and more about as it manifests itself in my life is accepting criticism and rejection like that's a big part of it uh, we talk a lot about self-worth we talk a lot about handling the fear of rejection and abandonment like all of these things are kind of wrapped up in in our conversation today and it's really good and it's really enlightening and I hope that if you are dealing with any of these symptoms if you know anybody that's dealing with this then I hope that you would share this with them and I hope that you would listen and maybe learn something. And that's really what this is intended to do, is shed light on these things, normalize these things, be like, hey, we're not crazy, we're normal, we just are dealing with some other stuff. And that's that's a totally normal and okay thing. And so instead of being silent about it, instead of feeling shamed or guilty about it, here we are for the world to hear us owning our own dysfunctions in hopes that it helps somebody else own theirs. That's that's really the goal, is just self-discovery, chugging along on the journey, beginning again, knowing more about the self, and finding out better ways and more positive and healthy ways to manage the self. And if you can do that, man, you can fucking do anything, all right? So just keep that in mind. I'm not going to blab anymore besides telling you to please subscribe, rate, and review to this show on Apple Podcasts. I love when I get new reviews and that really helps me grow the show and that positive encouragement and reading that stuff is super helpful. It, 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 uh, it feels really good. So thank you to everybody that's done that and if you're not an Apple Podcast person, that's okay. If you're listening on Spotify, then what you can do is go to the Facebook page at Real Talk WBennyT and you can leave a little rating and a review there. Um, I am also on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok at BennyTomp18. And there's also a show page for this podcast on Instagram, and that is at RealTalkWBennyT. New episodes on Wednesdays, so make sure that you come back next week if this is your first time ever listening to this. Welcome in, my friends. This podcast is a podcast about people. And... <laughs> It's uh, usually about the people that I meet driving for Uber, but I've been experiencing some car troubles lately. I went out on the streets of Louisville where I live and I tried to do some street interviews and the content was kind of hit or miss. It was it was tough and I just decided, you know what, today I knew that I was going to have this interview and that this was going to be probably a little bit better than what I was going to get from strangers on the street as I continue to figure out ways to get creative, to get content from people, more of a humans of New York kind of approach while my car's in the shop. It just, you know, look, it's tough to do a show about driving for Uber when you don't have a car that's working for you. So I got to get that figured out. But in the meantime, I hope that you will enjoy this interview with Jade Stanton. My guest today is Jade Stanton, and Jade is a mental health coach and mental health advocate, and you can follow her on Instagram at Jade Mental Health Coach, and you can also check out her work at jadestanton.com, and she is on Facebook. There is a Facebook page as well, Jade Mental Health Coach there as well. Jade, welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. 
So um, anybody that's joining us at this point probably would not have heard any of the first 15 minutes of our conversation while I was kind of struggling to get all this stuff ready to go. But thank you for your patience. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for speaking so openly and honestly about borderline personality disorder, about various mental health aspects that um, for a long time have seemed either taboo or stigmatized. And now it seems like there's a a an awakening or at least these things are becoming more important in like the social lexicon right and more people are opening up about their struggles with anxiety and depression and mental health but within i mean mental health is such a broad term and then it's like there's people um standing in this line basically that are like all right finally we're getting recognition finally we're getting help but that's only feels like a small part of it because there's there's stigmas that are being broken, but then there's still other aspects and, and various disorders within mental health that still feel taboo or stigmatized and not as talked about. So thank you so much for doing what you do and doing the work that you do and helping people because that is really, really important. So I just wanted to make sure that you knew how impactful the work that you do is for everybody. Thank you. Thank you. When I, when I hear that, um, it really does keep me going. Um, you know, cause it's the mental health field is not an easy field, you know, to be in. I don't think it's, it's, you know, it takes a lot of emotions out of you. Um, but to know that it's, it's matter, you know, it matters to someone that, that it's making an impact. That is everything. And that was my goal to, to just make a difference. So we're going to talk a lot about, borderline personality disorder and from now on i think we can probably just call it bpd if, if that's cool and just abbreviate it sounds but, good to me <laughs> yeah it's a lot to you know uh continue to repeat over and over again so we've established that maybe let's let's first define it and establish what it is and then we'll spend a lot of time talking about you and your journey with it because um you'll hear a lot of people claim to be experts but they're experts in a field, and not to say that they're they're not experts and they're not smart people or, or well-equipped, talented people, but I find that the best experts are truly the people that live with these things or an addiction specialist who suffers from addiction themselves. Like They're going to be able to have insights and knowledge on, on their topic more so than someone who has studied it, but still doesn't connect with it because it's not their reality that they're living. So we're going to talk a lot about you and your journey and how you got into coaching and what you have found that's been helpful for you. Um, but first, let's go ahead and define what is BPD. Yeah, well, it's interesting, um, actually, that that you mention, you know, all of those things, because with BPD, the the main treatment for it was developed by someone who has the disorder. So, so it was someone who had it that really was able to, to come in and start helping people with it. The disorder itself is, um, I mean, it can kind of be summed up in the term emotional instability. Um, it, I kind of think of it as like emotions being on a roller coaster, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And that can change, you know, any moment, any second. Um, but essentially when it, when, there are nine symptoms to BPD. You have to have five to be to qualify for a diagnosis. And some of those symptoms include some of that emotional instability, instability in relationships, instability in your self-identity, um, some depersonalization, dissociation. Uh, so, so some cognitive difficulties, but definitely emotional difficulties. Um, how I define it though is a little bit different because I look at um, mainly the 
the brain activity behind it. And so what I think of BPD as is a highly um, emotionally sensitive brain that has difficulty putting in uh, cognitive actions or thinking clearly in the presence of high emotion. And so we're easily impacted by things in our environment or, or even trauma from our past. Trauma is very common with BPD. Um, so you're, you tend to be more emotionally sensitive. You're responding more emotionally um, and more volatilely, if that's even a word. <laughs> um, to, <laughs> you pulled it off. To, you pulled it off. Right? I made it happen. <clears throat> yeah. um, you know, responding to, to every little thing that they see or feel or hear or think with really strong emotions. It makes it difficult to know who you are, difficult to manage relationships. Um, and we can even tend to kind of depersonalize or dissociate from reality to escape some of that really intense emotional pain that, that people with BPD feel. Which is, you touched on a lot of stuff that um, I definitely want to circle back to in terms of disassociation and derealization. And as I've started to read about more and more of these things, I'm, I've, I've been on this journey um, trying to understand myself more and more. And I was diagnosed as bipolar. And then the more I've started to read about BPD, I'm starting to be like, well, this sounds a lot like what I experience as well. And um, that's really what prompted me to start to search out people who are experts in this field. And that's where I found you and your work. And I was just like, boom, my girl, this is it. Like, let's get her on. And so I want to I, I want to focus on you uh, for this first part and ask you about your journey and your struggles with BPD and like when you were diagnosed and when you first started to experience symptoms. Can you just go back to childhood, I guess? Yeah, actually, that's that's where it started was childhood. Um, as a child, I I knew that something was different um, about me, but I was not you know, I, I was a well-behaved child. I did well in school. I was, you know, close with my family. I didn't have, um, quote unquote problems, but I was, I knew there was something different about me. I was in my head a lot. I, I spent a lot of time like reading books and kind of living in a fantasy world in my head, um, imagining things or pretending. Um, and I was always processing things and I tended, I tend to be very, you know, I was emotionally sensitive even back then. Um, but as I got older, puberty is when, you know, they, those symptoms really started to show themselves and it started, uh, with, with just severe depression, um, seeming to kind of come out of nowhere. And then my, I started to get very angry. Um, I was self-injuring. I was screaming and yelling at my parents, um, rebelling a lot against the household rules, which a lot of it seemed to be kind of typical, teenager stuff. Sure. Um, it was my emotional reactions to those things that was, that seemed to be completely out of control. Um, so it, and the self-injury and the suicidal thoughts are really what, what was alarming, you know, my family, especially. So they took me in to get treatment. We did a full psych evaluation. I actually was diagnosed with BPD at 16, which is very unusual. They usually don't diagnose until 18, although that, that is starting to change a bit. Um, but I'm grateful that I was diagnosed early on at 16. The problem was they didn't tell me anything about BPD or what it was or, or what to do about it or anything like that. You know, they kind of just gave you a sheet of paper. Um, so my parents proceeded to put me through a lot of different therapists. Different, we tried different medications. I just was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, 
I was getting into a lot of trouble at home. I wasn't, you know, necessarily getting in trouble in other places like school, uh, but it was mainly at home and my close relationships with, with my family. I also was having a lot of difficulty um, with boyfriends, with dating. You know, I, I couldn't keep a boyfriend for longer than two days. Um, so all of those things were just building up, building up, building up. At, uh, shortly after age 16, I uh, made my first attempt to commit suicide. Um, and that's when my parents put me in the hospital, I believe, for the first time. Uh, but they ended up sending me to a residential treatment facility in Montana. So I'm from Florida. They, they shipped me all the way to the other side of the country in the middle of the night. Um, and it was a, a program treatment team for for troubled teens, what they called us troubled teens. Mm. Um, so I spent seven months there. It was supposed to be a treatment program. I was receiving therapy. Um, I did well while I was there. My symptoms seemed to subside. Uh, for the most part, were you taking medication at that point, or was it mostly talk point, therapy? I was not taking medication at that point. I had taken medication, you know, age 14, 15, 16. Then I think when I got to 17, was in the residential treatment facility. I was not taking medications, mm-hmm. um, and and did relatively well. Again, no meds, just some talk therapy, just and some group therapy there. Um, but it was, you know, very difficult for me coming home. Everything went back to to the way it was before. So that was confusing. And, and I hear this a lot, too, that, you know, we tend I was OK in some situations. And then in other situations, I was I was psychotic. I was sick. I couldn't see reality. I was, you know, falling apart. So when I got home from that residential treatment facility, I was just as sick as as when I had left. Um, I ended up going to college. In college, I also had another suicide attempt. I dropped out twice, um, finally went back in and out of psychiatric hospitals, um, back on medication, seeing different therapists. Um, thankfully, I graduated somehow by the grace of God. Hey. Um, and, then, right? and then the week after I graduated, uh, I hit rock bottom. I was, I was just, I don't know if it was graduating college or what, but I just thought, you know, I don't know who I am. I don't. I don't want this life. I want to, I just want to die. I was in so much pain. I was just emotionally just in so much desperate pain, desperate to get out of this cycle. Um, and so I, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to end my life. And my, my mother convinced me to go to the doctor, uh, to try one more time. And I had, I made a pact with myself that I would try one more time. And then, you know, that was it. And I hate to be so blunt about it. Um, but that's how serious I was about, uh, you know, how much pain I was in and how I, I was ready to die. Um, we went to that doctor and we were in the waiting room and we were watching this video and he started talking about the illness that I had, borderline personality disorder. And he started talking about every symptom I was experiencing. He started talking about my self-injury. He even described the way it looked on my arms. I'm thinking, you know, how does this guy know what my arms look like? (laughs) He's never seen me before. What's going on? So he starts talking about the borderline brain. He starts talking about how different medications work, why things haven't worked in the past for so many people. And I just broke down. I had tears streaming down my eyes. My mother was crying. We were like, oh my gosh, we found we found someone who understands and who knows what they're talking about. And this person can help us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided I'm going to do whatever this man tells me to do. I don't care what it is. I'm just going to do it. I don't care if I agree with it or not. I'm just going to do whatever he tells me. And I did. Um, I went to 
intensive DBT therapy, uh, six hours a week for a year and a half, took a lot of medications. I was on antipsychotics, seizure medications, antidepressants, all kinds of things. Um, and for two years, I did that, that very intensive treatment process and made a lot of progress. Um, even then though I was struggling, I, I was having still a hard time. So, um, I was attending DBT therapy, but at that point I decided, I started to get into community support. I started, um, working more with other people on a volunteer basis, talking to other people about the illness, finding out what worked for them, what helped them. Um, and then I started really working on the DBT skills, the dialectical behavior therapy skills in my own life, which are these skills that were developed by this person with borderline personality disorder. I started using those skills and mastering those skills. And that's where um, really the major changes started to occur in my life. I had the medical stuff taken care of. I had the, the, the past, you know, working through my past taken care of. But when I got those skills, the, that final step was getting the skills to learn how to live my life, how to have relationships, how to talk to people, how to how to function every day, how to deal with my emotions when they came up. That that was the game changer. Um, so long story short, I've been in, in recovery officially since I met that doctor. Uh, it's been almost 12 years. Um, but the DBT skills are what, you know, that came a few years later. And that's really where a lot of the changes started to happen in, in my daily life. That's what brought me here. I'm married now. Uh, I just had my third wedding anniversary. Um, my husband and I have been together 11 years. We have a great marriage. I have a job. I was never able to work before. I run my own company now. I, I work full time. I, I love my life. I have a good life. I still have problems. I still have, you know, issues. I still have things that happen in my life that, that, you know, create havoc. Um, but I, I look forward to living. I look forward to waking up every day. I, I, I love working with people. I love connecting with people. I mean, I could not be more blessed. Um, and that was not ever what I imagined my life being, <laughs> but that, but that's what it is today after, after the hell of borderline personality disorders. So that's, that's my story. Well, awesome story. Congratulations on your three year you. anniversary. That's great. Thank um, you. what are some of the symptoms that you experience and are they something that I guess, do you experience things in episodes or is there always a consistent baseline or how do you know when things are starting to come on for you and you're, you're starting to experience your symptoms? Good question. Um, so I would say that there's a baseline level of, um, emotional sensitivity at, at all times. Um, so I know that I'm emotionally sensitive at all times. I know that it's very easy for um, my symptoms to to start popping up. Um, so there is kind of like a baseline level there that I'm aware of, um, but that doesn't really you know cause any issues. But then that then episodes happen. So it's it's changed. I mean, when I first was ill, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily episodes. I was always um, in chaos. I my brain was always it was I couldn't just feel angry. I felt rageful. I felt like I was going to blow up. I felt like I couldn't control myself. Um, you know that now these are that doesn't happen anymore, right? Now I can recognize um, if I'm feeling irritated. 
and then stop that before it turns into an episode. So yeah, there, I think there is a baseline level for, for me and for a lot of people of maybe like underlying depression or underlying anxiety or underlying just like some emotions down there, fear or shame or whatever it is. Um, but then something happens usually to, to trigger that into an episode. And we don't always necessarily know what that is. I wasn't aware of what was triggering my episodes. I just knew that I was blowing up into a rageful episode. Um, and that was the rage part. There's other, some of the other symptoms were this fear of abandonment and rejection, you know, the severe feeling that, that no one is there for you. You are alone. Um, you know, no one cares. People are only going to hurt you. So there's also kind of a baseline fear of rejection and abandonment. I think for people with BPD, that's there most of the time. Then when they see someone do something that they think is abandonment, that's going to trigger, you know, more of an episode where Mm -hmm. they're going to, now those symptoms are going to blow up. They're going to become more, more apparent. Cause that's like, the other shoe dropping at that point, right? You're like, I don't want this thing to happen. And then when it happens, it's just spiral. Yes. And that's actually, I think where a lot of the patterns come from is because we're trapped in this loop of, okay, I have behavior that, that I hate myself for. So we shame ourselves for our behavior. And then by shaming ourselves for our behavior, it makes it even more difficult to stop it. We've got uncontrollable emotions. We've got uncontrollable behaviors. And then we, but we know that we've got those emotions and behaviors. We know what we shouldn't be doing. That's kind of how we talk (laughs) to ourselves. You shouldn't be doing this. It's like standing on outside of yourself and watching yourself, you know, act in ways and say things and do things that, that you wish with all of your heart, you could stop doing because you know, it's creating destruction. Mm -hmm. Um, but once you've done it, now you go into the shame and the guilt cycle where you hate yourself. You feel like you're never going to be able to stop that behavior. You're never going to be able to change. And so the only solution then is that, you know, to get rid of the problem, which you think is you. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it is a, uh, it's lonely, it's lonely disorder, but yeah, there's, there's, I think there is a baseline, um, level of kind of emotional instability that goes there. And then it just takes something small or some, maybe something you don't even recognize to then set that off and set off a pattern of behavior and emotions and thoughts that just create destruction. Can you give an example of how it looks when you are feeling emotionally sensitive? What are things that typically will, like, what is that? Can you describe that for for somebody that might not understand that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is how I would, a lot of women, for example, will get more emotionally sensitive when they're on their hormone cycles, right? Depending on where they are in their cycle, they'll be more sensitive. Um, well, per- someone with BPD is kind of like always PMSing, you almost might think, right? <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of how the brain is. It's like ready to, to just fall apart at anything. Um, so, but, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take something big to lead you to to meltdown. So I'll give you an example of, of what that might look like great right, in my life. Um, when I was younger, when I was actually, when I first met my husband, when we were dating, um, I was already hypersensitive, meaning I was all, I already felt like people were going to abandon and reject me. Um, I already felt afraid of what I was going to do in a relationship or, or how I was going to fail. Mm-hmm. So I went into the relationship with a baseline level of fear and, and expecting the worst. 
Um, and so my emotions are already kind of like a little tense there. So my brain is, is already on hype. It's hypervigilant. It's looking around for threats. It's looking around for a problem. Right. So then if, if my husband or my boyfriend at the time, um, says something like, uh, you know, I can't make it to dinner tonight. I, I have to work. Well, that is a confirmation to my brain that my baseline level of fear of rejection and abandonment that's happening right now. It's, it's, it's true. It's happening right now. He's abandoning me. Mm -hmm. And so I react as if like your, your husband of 20 years just packed his bags and walked out the door one day with no warning. That's how I react. Mm -hmm. Right. But all he did was say, I I can't make it over tonight. I got to go to work. So that's, that's kind of how BPD works is our emotional response to things is not, um, not in, in accordance with, with the actual event because our brain is already hypervigilant to things. I think anybody that loves us in, in all of our beautiful flaws probably deserves like some kind of the greatest medal or award <laughs> that you could ever give to somebody because the patience that it would take to understand, you know, these things because to, to you or, or to me or to other people, things could feel like, what the fuck? This is the end of yes. the world. Like, why would you, why, 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 why? And, and so credit to all the people that, that have stayed Seriously. by our side. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And we, we would, you know, I, it's a, it's a middle path there. I tell people, you know, look, you got to have healthy boundaries. You got to have, you know, you can't, can't just stay in a relationship that's unhealthy, but I'll tell you what, the people that have been committed, that have stayed by our side as we go through treatment, and we do have to be willing to recover and to go through treatment and learn new ways of behaving. Those people are, are the MVPs. They, <laughs> If I could just like give them all the money in all the world, it wouldn't be enough for, for you know what they do and what they show us because they really do break that belief in our heads that, that we are unlovable. You know, they, they kind of are the people that remind us look, you might have an illness, um, but you are not unlovable. And so that's, it's a beautiful thing. There are some wonderful people out there. My husband's being one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of, I think what's what's really sad is that with different mental health disorders and specifically in the context of BPD, I think there is so much of the shame and the guilt and then that manifests itself in such a low self-worth and then you you compound that with the fear of abandonment and rejection. So in those little micro instances where things are confirmed for for us, then it's like, wow, they did leave because I'm unworthy and because I'm this unlovable piece of shit. Right. Yes, it is on one hand a self-fulfilling prophecy because if we believe that about ourselves, we're going to act like that in our relationships you know, and then on the other hand, it's, it teaches us over time that we were right. You know, yeah. we, we were totally right, which makes it harder for us to then unlearn that lesson that, that we are love lovable. You know, we don't deserve to be abandoned or rejected, but that we do have to, to change ourselves, you know? And, and that's the other part is that we've been taught this message that, um, BPD is not changeable, that, that we're stuck like this, that we have to live like this. There's nothing we can do. Um, and there's just, that's nothing, there's nothing further from the truth. So let's talk about how people develop this disorder and where these feelings come from, because I want to ask if you experienced, um, 
you know, divorce or abuse during your childhood? Like, where do these, does it all, do these feelings always come from personal experiences that we go through during childhood? Or do people who develop this disorder just develop fears of, you know, criticism or rejection or abandonment just through the disorder itself? Can you kind of talk to that? Yeah. So there's a big debate about that. And, and where, the research is, seems to be coming out is that um, it is not just genetics and it's not just your environment. It's a con it's a combination of, of the two, usually for most people for my particular, and, and I'm one of those examples. I, I did not go through like major trauma or abuse or anything like that. And there are people who will argue and say, well, trauma is relative, right? What, what I experience as a trauma, um, what someone else thinks is a trauma might not be a trauma to me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say, you know, I grew up in a, in a family where I was provided for, I was safe. Everything I ever needed was given to me. My parents loved me. They cared about me, all of those things. Um, but as I was also genetically predisposed, so I, my family goes back generations with, with things like this. Um, so I was genetically predisposed to this. Then having something like a, a term turmoil or, or, you know, difficulties, lots of conflict in the relationship between my parents, that's going to cause more of an environmental impact on me than it, than it might for a child who was not born more emotionally sensitive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, right. Not everyone with BPD has gone through trauma. Um, the vast majority have the vast majority, um, 75, 85% at least. Um, wow. so, there are lots of people you would hear from a lot of people that BPD is a trauma disorder. Um, but there's research that shows that, that PTSD and, and complex PTSD is different from borderline personality disorder. They're not the same disorder. Um, so trauma does play a big role. I, I think it, it would, um, by far make someone more, more prone to developing borderline personality disorder. Um, However, there are also, you know, people who go through trauma who don't have BPD, people who have BPD who haven't gone through trauma. So, so it's not necessarily as, as cut and dry as all of that. Um, the research seems to show that there's a pre, there's a, there's a genetic disposition, um, to being more emotionally sensitive and that may or may not get triggered by environmental situations. Um, also on the other hand of that, if you grow up in an abusive and traumatic environment, you're going to develop a more sensitive emotional system anyways. Um, so it's kind of, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? They don't know. They just know there's a chicken and there's an egg. <laughs> which is so frustrating with a lot of these different things that that we're talking about is because there's no, you know... I, I, maybe this would be the one time that, that splitting would be good where it's very <laughs> concrete, right? Right. Because a lot of this stuff is, okay, it could be this, okay, it could be this, okay, you're experiencing this, but you don't have all these symptoms, and then you're just like, well, what the right. hell am I, and where the hell did it come from, you know? And, right. Um, when you talk about genetics, is, are you talking about people within the family tree that might have had BPD, or just people in the family tree that might have been dealing with various mental health disorders? Could be various mental health disorders, Um you know, usually BPD hasn't been died. Like for an, an example in my family, we go back to my great grandmother, right? But 
BPD wasn't being diagnosed in her generation, wasn't being diagnosed in her children's generation, was just starting to be diagnosed in their children's generation. And now it's me. So, um, so really what I think it is, is genetic predispositions to, to just having, you know, different brain chemistry, things like that. I also, you know, I think there's a lot of factors. I think diet plays a big part. Um, there are even people who can develop BPD symptoms from brain traumatic, you know, brain trauma, um, traumatic brain injuries, uh, difficulties during birth. Yeah. Concussions. Right. So we've, we've seen that recently, right. With behavior changes coming out. So, so there's a lot of factors I think that can go into it. What I tend to tell people is, um, forget about the why and focus on the, on the what's happening and what do I do to change it? Um, but there is something else that I kind of want to mention about that too, is that I don't think that we would be having so many um, issues if if it was normal um, for us to to know how to manage emotions, to know how to manage suffering, to know how to uh, manage conflict and relationships. I think in general, our society just isn't a, we haven't been taught to do that. That's not something that's been passed down through generations. And so we have a lot of generational patterns um, that that come out in what we now see in being as being diagnosed as BPD, in my opinion, that's just my opinion. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot certainly recently with, um, I don't know if you know who Brandon Marshall is. He was an NFL player. Yeah. So he, you know, and and I was reading before we did this interview, just a little bit about um, him and, and kind of what he's doing now. And, I know that uh, Junior Seau, I don't, he was, you know, he's never been, I don't think, in the same conversation as BPD, but I know that when you were talking about brain trauma and concussion, and we see a lot of these NFL players, and like, um, Javon Belcher was another NFL player that drove up to the Chiefs facility and, and killed himself, and so you you see athletes and and more so you know in that sense like nfl guys which are men that are starting to talk about some of this stuff and um i think it's i think it's really interesting i was speaking with uh julie fast who's a bipolar expert and she was saying uh because i'm bipolar and we were talking about it and she's like ben where are the men who are talking about bipolar or or these and it didn't really register to me at that point because I had never really gone to seek that stuff out right. on online or anything. But now when I will hashtag either men with bipolar or men with BPD, like on Instagram you, or, or Facebook, you can see how many times something's been hashtagged. I'm talking less than a thousand times these yeah. things have been hashtagged. And even yeah. even BPD is, is like around 22,000 on Instagram or, or yeah. Facebook. So it's it's like these things exist and statistically we know that people are, are suffering from these diseases, but yet where are they talking about them and, and where are they seeking help? And right. that's why people who like yourself that offer the coaching services that you do and speak about these experiences so openly and honestly and candidly is really helpful because even if, you know, it's like, um, it's like, 
coming into class and in, in like a sex ed class and they're like, all right, we're going to pass out condoms. Who in here is having sex? And no one reaches for them because no one wants to be <laughs> right. the first. But it's like, we all know you got like, right. we know what you're doing, right? It's like the same. I'm like, where are these? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I, I really don't yeah. know. I mean, I don't. And it's funny because as I've gone down these wormholes and, and really what's great is that Instagram, you can find so many of these accounts like yours and like what is mental illness and all these different and they produce memes that are super helpful and I just mm-hmm. save them. I mean, I just got yeah. like all different tags and archived. <laughs> yeah. Thousands and thousands of them, right? And all of these accounts are run primarily by women. Yes, they are. Yes, so, they are. Yeah, so yeah. much so much so that my Instagram feed literally thinks that I'm a woman Full and we'll girls, probably- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Which I, you know, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that, but like, but yeah, yeah I, th- no, I, right. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, You know, I, I do talk about gender a lot in my, in my classes because I do find that, you know, the way women and men pro- process problems is different, right? Women like to talk. When we have a problem, we, we talk about it. So we go online and we search about it. We talk about it. We read books about it. And we do all of those things. When a man has a problem, what he tends to do is he tends to sit back and he thinks about it, you know, and he might watch a football game and then, you know, process while he watches the football game. And then by the end, he's got his answer to what he's going to do about the problem. Um, so we we kind of process problems a little differently, however, and I think that's one of the things that contributes to it. But I think that's the smaller thing. I think the bigger thing is that, um, you know, we have a stigma against men talking about mental illness to a certain extent. I think it's starting to change, um, you know, more, more so than I've ever seen. Um, you know, it's and even my husband has been starting to talk about mental illness more and more and more. But we need men to talk about it because, um, you know, when men find someone to talk about, I have a men's group. You know, and they don't want to hear from they don't want to hear me talk about mental illness. <laughs> they mm. want to hear from another man who who knows what it's like to be a man, who knows what it's like to be in that position, who knows the things that you deal with that are different from what women deal with and 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 how all of that works and how we can come together, how men and women can support each other, you know, through the illnesses. There's not a whole lot of men. Um, I will tell you though, surprisingly, out of like the four podcasts I've done so far with guests, two have been men and you're one of them. So hey. maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe we're making some progress here. <laughs> there we go. One day at a time, one day yeah. at a time. Um, no, and it's funny because a lot of, um, you know, what's, what's unique about when I'm driving and I have the riders in the car People will say, oh, you know, I don't want to talk to a therapist. I don't need to talk to a therapist. But Uber drivers, by and large, are some major therapists. Yes. Yeah. So much so that I'm I'm really considering getting a life coaching degree, you know, uh, going through a certification just to have it to be more aware of of things that I'm not and be able to speak Mm -hmm. a little bit more knowledgeably through, you know, beyond my own personal research. But just it's funny because I'll get I'll get guys from all over the city that look a million different ways, that sound a million different ways, that do a million different things. And once I start to open up about, uh, if the conversation goes there, right? Right. But once once we're in that um, conversation, it's like they have no problem sharing. But if you told this person, hey, there's a group that's going to meet up or hey, right. would you sit down <laughs> with a therapist? They'd be like, no way, man. Like, no, no. They want to, and this is why, this is what I think mental health should be. I think it should be a regular conversation that we have with people. I don't know why it's not. Um, 
and, and I kind of, you know, I've gotten a lot of help from therapy. I'll be honest, but the most help I've gotten in my mental health is, is from other people who are struggling with it and, and us sharing our experiences and working through it together. It wasn't someone telling me, you know, what to do or how to do it. It was, it was me finding community. And I, and I honestly think that's one of the biggest things that is missing, especially with the men, because, you know, I I think we all struggle with community these days. We're all so busy, but, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we, we really do need to talk about it. And, and that makes me so happy to hear that that's (laughs) like a topic in passing conversation for you. Um, because they probably walk away so grateful. I have had so many people say, you know, thank you. I needed to talk about that. Um, So they probably, you know, get out of that car and just feel like a weight has been lifted off their shoulders just by that conversation. I think that's wonderful. I've had grown men that tell me that they love me before they get out of the car. See, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. It is a conversation that needs (laughs) to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and what's amazing is that you think that people wouldn't want to, to go there or open up about it. But then once... You know, I had another person who came on and he does, um, he leads men's groups and he's uh, uh, an addict in recovery and has been sober for 34 years. And he actually lives just a couple of condos down and struck up conversation with him just walking one night. And I was like, what do you do? And he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, dude, walk down, you know, a couple (laughs) doors down and come on in the studio. So he came on and something that he said really has stuck with me. And that is if you lead with vulnerability, vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity. And so in a lot of these conversations I'm having, if I'm willing to lead and open up, then how people respond to that is really the the inspiring and the amazing thing. Because then it's like somebody that maybe might feel taboo or that like they can't go there and talk about these things now has this space where it's like, okay, wow, here's this other person that so boldly is willing to go there. So now I feel more comfortable sharing. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's really, really cool and important. It has, it has amazing ripple effects. Uh, I've seen it so many times where I, I love that. Yeah. When you lead with vulnerability, I honestly think that people are dying for vulnerability. Um, you know, I think, I think they are desperate for, for people who are going to, to be real and to, and to say, you know what, I have struggles too. And this is what my life is like. Um, you know, I've had grown men too, you know, come to me and just be like, I haven't spoken to anybody about that in 20 years, you know, and, and if in five minutes, you know, we got that talked about and, and it's just a beautiful thing. I think, honestly, I think that's part of the purpose of life. I think that's why we're here. I think that's why we're here together is to connect with, with each other and to learn those things. Um, but when you're, when you've struggled with mental health, uh, you know, we t- I don't know why we do this, but we tend to isolate. The last thing we do is go out and reach out and be vulnerable. We, we tend to, you know, like pack it up and guard ourselves. Um, and that's the opposite of what works. I think there's there's a couple of things within that that I want to dive deeper into. And, and one of them, going back to what what you said, and then um, maybe a reason for that is is also something that had Tim had touched on in one of these previous episodes, where he said we were talking about um, children who grew up with ADHD, which a lot of times um, people who are later diagnosed with BPD started mm-hmm. with ADHD, or maybe yes, were diagnosed did. as ADHD. 
And he said that a child that grows up in, in a school system, and certainly, I mean, he's like in his late 50s, and so it was even even more so different back then when he was coming up, but a child who goes through school that suffers from ADHD will be ticked and corrected like a thousand or 10,000 more times than mm-hmm. what we would deem as like an air quote normal student. Right. And a lot of that, I think, then transcends into these struggles with self-worth. And so then when we're feeling at our worst, I think that's when, at least personally for me, that's when I typically tend to isolate the most because, one, I don't feel worthy of anybody else's love. I'm like, please, I am like, please get away from me because I just can't accept it for myself. So there's no way I could possibly accept it from somebody else. And then the other part of that for me is I don't want anybody else to see how bad it actually is and like how bad the binge eating is get or how bad like the porn addiction is getting or like any of these other behaviors that that manifest themselves i'm like i don't want to be around anybody else right now because i don't want anybody to worry about me so then i'll emerge once i'm feeling better and then i come back to this phrase begin again which is like Mm -hmm. Okay, that was tough. We we got over that one. Now begin again. Let's let's continue to Which can going. be effective. Yeah, that I mean that can be very effective. In fact, that's that's some of the things that I do as well when I'm really, you know, if I'm having a really bad day and I know that <clears throat> excuse me, if I just go vent about it that like it might bring somebody else down that day or something. You know, I might I might isolate myself a little bit. I think that can be um you know, it's a, it's a defense mechanism. I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that we think that because we're feeling this way or having these struggles, that something is wrong with us. And so the last thing you want people to know is what's wrong with you. Um, and instead I, you know, it's been very freeing, I think for me to understand that, that none of these, none of my reactions are that something is wrong with me. Um, it's, it's that I'm totally normal, like the way I'm feeling and the way I'm reacting to things, having feelings is 100% normal. In fact, I'd be a weirdo if I didn't have feelings. (laughs) Um, right. So, but learning to talk to yourself that way is almost impossible if you've never had anyone talk to you that way. And, and how would you, if you've never, you know, if you isolate and that, that was my life, I had isolated a hundred percent. So how, how would I even have a concept of someone, um, you know, giving me love if I'd never given anyone the opportunity to do that anyways, I was too busy protecting myself. Um, again, very effective for a lot of people, especially if you grew up in, in an invalidating environment or a traumatic or abusive environment, you can't go to people for help, you know? Um, and so you learn to protect yourself. You learn to isolate and protect yourself. Uh, very effective to survive in an environment like that. It's once you become an adult, Um, that it starts to, you know, it can start to backfire for you. And I want to tie that back into the instability or or unstable relationships that people with BPD experience, because it sounds like what we're talking about when, when you say, you know, what you just said is like that we put these walls up and it's almost like, again, it comes back to so much of the stuff is self-fulfilling prophecies. And it's so, that's, that, that part of it is so fucking Uh, frustrating, but uh, you do, you put these walls up, you put these barriers up because you're like, I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be abandoned, but then you find yourself alone and it can be tough to pull yourself out of that. And that creates unstable relationships. And, and for me, um, you know, I went through a very nasty divorce and we were a Catholic family. And then my brother and my sister and I were essentially blackballed from our family. And 
a Catholic family, like the Godfather and the Godmother is like a big deal. Like I lost all of my, um, you know, a lot of my favorite cousins and and a lot of that stuff. So, mm-hmm. it and it's tough because it's like, okay, so is that why I'm here now? You know, is that why I struggle with with unstable relationships? And you know, some of it's me, some of it is is also them, and like putting boundaries up and. And so, but, but I think that that is something that I struggle with is just, and even it it can become paranoia sometimes, like, does this person really want to see me glow and thrive or are they the person that's like talking shit in behind closed doors? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I, what I mean by like the patterns that I think the generational patterns, um, that we have, you know, not really looked too closely at or, or learned about how to deal with these things more effectively, right? What, what is more effective? Let's say you have someone who gets a divorce and you don't agree with it. Um, what's more effective for you being able to maintain your relationship with that person and let them know how you feel about that things uh, about it and, and all of that? Well, it wouldn't be just to cut them off. It would be to, you know, communicate to them, or it would be to, negotiate or things like that. You know, we don't, we don't really necessarily learn those skills. A lot of us, even today, I see a lot of posts like, Oh, if someone's toxic, just cut them off. And like, you know, you could cut off everybody if you, if you did that. Um, so I think it's a lack honestly of, of families and generations and, uh, coming down to us, not knowing how to, uh, resolve conflict and how to, um, well, I think that's part of it, but, but I want to kind of bring it back to, to really the fear of abandonment and the rejection, because I think that's the core, the core issue there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you believe that if you do something, people disagree with that, they are going to reject and abandon you. Um, well, if you're in an environment where that's true, you know, then it, 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 you've been taught that it's a true lesson. You're, you are going to operate in life as if that's true of everyone and everything. Right. So, and there are moments where if someone is doing something that you really disagree with and you don't like that, you are going to have to put in boundaries and cut that person off or end the relationship and things like sure. that. Um, but you know, when that happens, that's not abandonment or rejection, right? Abandonment or rejection doesn't come with open communication and, and, you know, understanding of boundaries and things like that. Um, so when we talk about like fear of abandonment and rejection, and we, even these small things can feel like fear of abandonment and rejection. If you have a child that, um, gets all B's and their parents want them to get all A's and they're not happy until they get all A's, that child internalizes that. Um, and I don't think we stop doing that as adults really either. I, I think we continue to internalize it. If my parent doesn't, or my, or my close family member or someone I look up to um, abandons or rejects me or doesn't, you know, go, go, does something that indicates that they're abandoning me or rejecting me, we internalize that um, as, as kind of a, a commentary on us as a, as a person. Sure. That's where I think our, our skills come in is, is being able to see outside and understand, like you said, you know, some of it's me, some of it's them. And so we have to understand, okay, what are the things that these people are doing? That's not effective. What are they doing? That is effective. 
and and what am I doing that's effective or or ineffective? Um, you know, you might make choices that are effective choices for you. They're helpful choices for you. They're choices that worked out well for you that other people don't agree with. And that's going to hurt, you know, that they don't agree with it. Um, but if you have the skills to recognize that they can be hurt and you can still choose your path, um, you know, there's I think there's some freedom in that. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're entitled to live your life the way that you, you know, desire to live it as long as you're not like, you know, murdering people and doing like bad stuff. But right, you, exactly. There are it, it depends on the context, the situation. Yeah. But if you are like and I would re- I would really be interested to see how much of this is wrapped up in in um, like cultures like Indian cultures or Asian cultures where you've got this expect expectation that people should become doctors or work in medicine mm-hmm. and and then if they want to go down that separate path like really in the context of what we're talking about it's like my family might disapprove of what I'm doing but I still have the right to move forward with my life the way that I I choose to live it mm-hmm. right and they have the right to be mad about it and to be upset about it and to you know disagree with you as well but then you have the right to not agree with their choice to do that um so I think you know, a lot of that is boundaries work and emotional boundaries work, you know, emotional boundaries, again, a lesson none of us have really been taught. I was Mm -hmm. taught that, you know, I, I, um, you know, if someone's upset, I need to figure out what I did to make them upset and fix it, you know? And that's like the opposite of what I teach my clients, that if someone's upset and you didn't, you don't know what you did to upset them. It's not your job to go fix it. It's their job to communicate to you what they're upset about. And then it's Mm. your job to figure out if, you know, if you want to change or not. Um, So I, I, I think that a lot of these things are, are just things that, that we haven't necessarily been taught. We've just grown up a lot of us in different cultures or different families where um, we've accepted, you know, the way that things were done and that things are usually done for a reason, right? My parents always taught me, you know, children are seen and not heard, respect Mm. your parents, sit up straight at the dinner table, you know, things like that. There's a reason why they taught me that there's some good in those lessons. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also some harm in some of those lessons, right? That children maybe need to be heard sometimes and not just seen. Uh, So I think it's sorting through, you know, what we've been taught. And what we what we assume is true, um, we have to learn to question all of those things and relearn, you know, a lot of these things, I think. Can you can you talk about why people with BPD struggle so much with accepting criticism? Do you find that when somebody is just giving you general feedback, do you find yourself pushing back a lot? Um yeah, that's a great question. OK, so th- this is a perfect example of how BPD wor- works, right? When someone gives me criticism, I have all the skills in the world to recognize like, OK, you know, maybe they're giving me some good advice. Let's hear out what they have to say. But my body and the brain that comes with borderline personality disorder, I have an adrenaline rush like nobody's business. I start breaking out in sweats. My heart starts going a million miles a minute. I mean, I feel the adrenaline rush. So it literally feels like someone is is fighting you. Like someone is coming to attack you. Like someone is coming to like, you're in danger in Mm -hmm. some way. Um, that's usually what makes it hard. I think for people to accept criticism, especially people with BPD is their nervous system responds to that. Like it's a threat, like, Mm -hmm. like we need to fight that or run away from it or, or something. We see that as a threat. 
Now, the truth is criticism is often not a threat. Helpful criticism is definitely not a threat. It's it's the opposite of a threat. Um, but the BPD brain sees most things as a threat. Anything that brings some pain with it is a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a big part of it. I think also there's the shame and the guilt. So if you've got someone who has low self-esteem, they have lots of self-hatred, lots of shame. They, they don't know who they are. They don't know what they want. They don't know what they agree with or disagree with. And then you have someone criticize them. Not only are they going to feel um, attacked and they're going to feel hurt, um, they're also going to automatically assume that they're bad, they're wrong, they're evil, and they probably deserve to die because they did something wrong, which is you know an extreme reaction. Um, but it stems from the, the not being able to recognize, okay, this person is criticizing me and they, they might be correct and they might not. We just assume this is a threat and, and it's bad and I'm bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to ask you about what you found in terms of medications that have worked for you and, and how you treat. And, and so I'm trying to figure out how I actually how I actually want to do this because I'd like to go into BPD and bipolar and why these things are often misdiagnosed or diagnosed as each other and, and the relationship that they have um, as well as things like OCD and ADHD and like a lot of this stuff is there's overlaps in so much. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why I was like, yeah, if it was just black and white, that would just be so much easier. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and but like I want to I want to ask about medication because what did you was it a process of elimination what did you how did you treat um, certain symptoms and yeah talk about your medication journey yeah so most um, doctors that I found do treat it kind of like a process of elimination and there is an aspect to that I think for people um, you know not everyone's body is going to respond to the same medications but my doctor has a very unique. Um, outlook on the medication process, the medical treatment of BPD, and he's very specific. So how he treats it is with Prozac, um, number one, but then since the Prozac has such high, you know, serotonin levels, but it's disrupting some of your other levels, he adds in other medications. So the medications that, and he's written a great book about this, um, a combination of antidepressants, a mood stabilizer, and anti-seizure medication, essentially. Um, and antipsychotics, all three. So my medication regimen looked like I would I would take um, my antidepressant and my anti-seizure medication in the morning and at night. I, I had a, um, a an anxiety medication as well that I would take. Um, but then I had extra seizure medications if I were having an episode or if I knew I was irritable or things like that. I would take that seizure medication that se- or, or mood stabilizer, which would kind of calm my brain down within like 40 minutes or so. If I was having a really bad episode, I had an antipsychotic to take, and that would help calm my episode down within a few minutes. If I couldn't, if I was sick for like 24 hours, then I had another antipsychotic medication that I would take, and then I would go to sleep for a long time, and then I would wake up, and it would kind of reset my brain. Um I found through the past few years that doctors are not happy about prescribing all of these medications to their patients. Um, There are some risky side effects with antipsychotics and things like that. Um, 
And so it is, you know, a cost benefit analysis for people. Um, but that was what, what saved me. It was learning really how to take my medications and stop an episode so I could get back into, into learning my skills or figuring out what the problem was and dealing with it. I think that's the most um, discouraging thing about some of the medications that are out there is that you hear these really extreme side effects and, you know, it's like for me, I'm like, okay, do I want to take this medication, this antidepressant that might make me less depressed but might also make my body weight balloon and then if my body it might even make you more depressed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, wow, what what do you where do you even right? start? But yeah. How how many how many different medications did you start with before you found the perfect or, or at least the, the, the mix that worked best for you? That I couldn't tell you. I probably <laughs> tried 10, 15 different medications just in like the antidepressant area. I mean, yeah. I, I tried every, you name it. I've probably tried it. Um, I, I tried so many things and I had tried these medications before as well. I mean, Prozac I had tried before mm -hmm. and it didn't work for me, but the reason it worked for me this time was because he used it in combination with another medication. So it's very difficult. I mean, you know, it's, it's like trying to type in numbers and guess someone's pin number, you know, it's, it's right. really, um, difficult there, there's great research out there. I mean, there are some tools, there's, there's a, gen a genetic test you can take now that will give you what might more likely, you know, work with your body better. It's not hundred percent accurate. Um, so yeah, it is very much like, like a trial and error and Guinea pig for me, it was worth it. And I think it, it comes case by case basis, right? I mean, I was suicidal. I, I was ready to, my, my life was, I was at high risk of, of dying from this illness. So there's no medication that has a risk higher than that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so my cost benefit was kind of easy. It was like, look, I could either die or I could try this medication. Um, other people, you know, they, there's more elements to it. You know, they might have a job they have to go to and the side effect is that they're going to get sleepy. They might have an eating disorder and the side effect is that they're going to gain weight. I had one antipsychotic, I gained five pounds in like a week. I mean, it, you know, there are all kinds of, of downsides. So they are working on different medications. Um, the combination tends to be best, but Underneath all of the medications, you know, addressing the, the medical problem, I think ultimately it's a, it's a matter of changing your habits. If you're unable to change your habits on your own, I think medications are important. Um, but even on medications, you're going to have a lot of work to do, right? The medications don't just get rid of the problem. They just make it easier for you to then engage in uh, your therapy, your treatment, your skills, things like that. All right. We have like 15 minutes left. <laughs> so we'll have to uh, do this again sometime. <laughs> yeah. I knew this would happen. You know, even an hour and a half is never enough time. No. Um, so I want to kind of, I, I want to kind of hit on a couple of different things here, but just quickly, what advice would you give to people who are in the midst of finding their medication and what works best for them? Because I think there's a lot of people that either wouldn't start because of the fact that you are going to experience setbacks and possible side effects and you're going to maybe have to try 15 different things until you find the thing that works for you. And so people who are either thinking about starting that or who are like 
between their third and their fourth thing, and finally they're hitting another roadblock, and they're like, this isn't working either. What advice would you give to those people um, that are in the middle of that part of the journey? Yeah. Um, So I would, number one, you want to track. You want to track everything. Track your side effects, but track your symptoms. If a medication is working for your symptoms, but it's got a side effect, you you have to decide whether or not it's worth it to stay on that medication, right? So I had, for example, I had medications that like they caused some teeth issues, um, but they fixed my relationship. They helped fix my relationship and kept me from you know wanting to die all of the time. That was a trade off I was I was willing to make. Um, so, but you want to track because if if I didn't know the medication was working. I wouldn't have taken it. Um, so you want to track to make sure. So you know which medications are actually working for you and which ones aren't. Track your symptoms, track your symptoms, track your symptoms. Um, another thing that I would suggest is if you find a medication that's working for you, um, I wouldn't replace it. I would see if they can add on to it, right? If you have a medication that that seems to be helping you somewhat, but it's not getting you all the way there, then instead of finding a different medication and just replacing it all together, try at seeing what you can add on to that medication. So you want to add on things that work for you, if that makes sense. Um, Also, you know, for, if you, if you are the type of person who's been in this process, you've tried a bunch of medications, you've done all that stuff. I recommend going back to the drawing board, start from the beginning all over again. There might be a medication in there, um, that didn't work for you before that might work for you now. Cause that was, that was my scenario where I had a medication didn't seem to be working. I tried it again from a clean slate. Um, and it made a difference. Uh, third thing I would recommend is talk to your pharmacist above all your pharmacist knows way more than your doctor knows about medications. So your pharmacist is your best friend when it comes to asking medication questions. And the fourth thing I would say is, Look, do your own clinical research. Uh, go on Google, uh, Google uh, Scholar. Type in medications for your illness. Read, 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 read. Um, I, I, the anti-seizure medication, for example, with borderline personality disorder. I have never heard a doctor recommend that medication um, in in the past ten years. I've never heard another doctor recommend that medication not once. But it is clinical research shows it's growing in use with BPD. It's been growing in use for decades. Companies are investing in it now because they anticipate it being used more and more in the coming years. Um, So do your own research. You're you're not necessarily going to get all the information or even half of the information you need from your doctor. Uh, you got to go online and, and start doing your own research. What are some books or some resources that you have found to be helpful that you would recommend to other people who want to learn more about BPD? Okay. Um, loving someone with BPD is great for the, for the loved ones, for the family members. It can also be educational for the people with BPD. Um, I really liked, uh, well, I'll just give you the names of some of the authors. Blaze Aguirre is a, is a good one. He has some really good, in fact, I think he, he did write, um, loving someone with BPD possibly. Uh, so Blaise Aguirre is a, is a wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, there's an, one of my favorite books is, um, is borderline personality disorder demystified. There's a lot of books out there and there's some with, with really inaccurate information. That's one that I liked very much. Um, borderline personality disorder demystified. 
anything by Marsha Linehan. Uh, she is the expert on the borderline personality disorder. She's the expert on the treatment for borderline personality disorder. She's got some great texts out there. Um, they're a little dry reading, you know, they're clinical reading, um, but they, they've still got a lot of great information in there. Um, I don't really love the books like Stop Walking on Eggshells or I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. Th those are not some of my favorite books, although they are very popular. Um, I do recommend Dr. Fox's Borderline Personality Disorder Workbook. That's another really excellent resource. And YouTube has some great videos as well from uh, McLean Family uh, BPD Education Initiative. Uh, Blaze Aguirre has some videos out. Alan Fruitsetti is another one. Um, so yeah, yeah. Be, uh, between those and and YouTube, you should have a, a couple of places to start. Um, but people are free to reach out as well for for any extra resources. That's amazing that you were able to just fire all of those off off the top <laughs> of your head because that's typically that's that's probably like the one question that I should send to people before speaking so that they can have a couple of them. But you were just like, Brrr, so that's great. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, we have like nine minutes left before, you know, because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I I think that we could do probably another episode on BPT and bipolar because I just don't know if there's enough time to really dive into. I agree. I think yeah. we should definitely do this again. And, and that is a topic that's close to my heart. Um, I'm not diagnosed with bipolar, but but most of the people I encounter either have been diagnosed with it before they've been misdiagnosed with it, or, you know, God forbid, they've got both talk about a confusing crossover. I got, I see a lot of people who have both borderline and bipolar. So, so they, you know, have really had to look hard at the differences and the different symptoms and how to deal with different symptoms. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a deep topic. There's a lot of information, a lot of, a lot of people who are really struggling with, with either figuring out which one they have or they have both. That's kind of where I'm at is I've been diagnosed as bipolar, didn't really start to experience major, major mood swings and, and the extremes between the two mania and depression until I was 24, 25, 26 years old. And then it was like, I need to, I need to figure these things out because like you were saying, it, it is life and death, right? It's like, mm -hmm. if I don't figure this stuff out and just be honest about this stuff, then I might not ever overcome this stuff. So what good is it doing, you know, for me to be silent about it? And mm -hmm. then as I'm, you know, as I'm reading more and more about BPD, a lot of the things that I'm reading about it are like, wow, okay, this one really feels like it applies to me. Like, um, and what I guess the one thing that I've been caught up on is I was describing sometimes when like I, I take an anti-seizure medication now and it's and it's I've just started taking that like a year ago so I'm still in the very beginning stages of, of finding out which medication works for me but I was describing some of these feelings that I'll get sometimes when I'm feeling untreated or or when an episode is coming on and I'm more manic and I've I described it as being almost like it almost like a, a it's a physical feeling. It, it's sometimes like goosebumps or it's like the vibrations are raised and it's like I'm watching myself from another like I'm watching a dream version of myself or uh, I will come into like this moment and I'm just like 
This seems really familiar. Did this happen in a dream? Did I just see this in a show? Is this a distant memory? Where, like, why do I feel like I, I was like meant to be in this moment? It's like a premonition. And what I was describing to um, Julie Fast, and she's like, that sounds like a psychotic, like those sound like psychotic symptoms. And then I started reading about disassociation and derealization, and I was like, "Oh wait, that sounds like really kind of what I'm going, like what I'm experiencing, mm-hmm. right?" Mm-hmm. Then, then I stumble on BPD, and I'm like, "I'm reading about rapid cycling bipolar, which is like more than four. And I'm like, "Dude, I go through like four in, in what feels like two, a couple <laughs> right. months or like three months." I'm like, what? "I tell people borderline is bipolar, like on speed, yeah." <laughs> yeah. So, and, and there are within by within um, BPD, maybe that's where we can just kind of wrap everything up today. Is there are mood swings within BPD, and that's often why it gets misdiagnosed as bipolar. So, mm-hmm. yeah, can can we just maybe finish there on on the mood swings part of it? And is that something yeah. you experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the mood swings, um, you know, they can definitely come in and out, you know, an interesting thing actually, and the way that my doctor treats BPD, and this is really where, where I tend to lean, um, treats this as a seizure disorder and the temporal lobe seizures have, have a lot of crossover between this derealization, depersonalization, these kind of like psychotic episode or psychotic feelings. Um, so, you know, I think above all these swings and these symptoms, I think they are a brain activity, um, problem primarily. That's what I, I think it has, has to do with your brain and your body. Um, and so, you know, when you're having a mood swing, when these things are, are, are coming on, um, I think it's really important to remember that it is a brain and a body response, um, and that it's a medical problem. You know, I, I believe hundred percent that, that it is a medical problem in that sense of, of your nervous system responding this way. Um, but then that can send you into a mood swing, right? If you're, if you're dissociating or, or these can cause serious issues in your life. And then, you know, then your moods are going to be up and down even more. Um, but yeah, they happen quickly with borderline. Um, they tend to, to spark like a mood swing will spark up quick. It will last longer than most people, and then it will take you longer to get da- back down to baseline. Um, so it so it can you know the the trick I think is learning to lower the mood swing so there's a, a lower hump there um, to get you back to baseline as soon as possible, and then to keep those those swings from spiking in the first place. Which is what he, um, the person who prescribed uh lamictal for me was like it's basically like putting a governor on a golf cart right you're not going to go too fast <laughs> so hopefully you won't go too slow and i was like great because this erratic like up and down up and down is just yeah so yeah. much of yeah and then the impulsivity yeah yeah it really is it really is so and and then like constantly trying to figure out okay where am i today you know and like Am I am I about to? And then again, it, it all comes back to self fulfilling prophecies, right? It's just like, right. Yeah, yeah. There's, it, there's and a lot. It is there. a job. I mean, I think it is a. I, I have people, and I was, you know, I've had days like that too, where it's like, look, I just need a break from like being on on hyper awareness about my mental health. I just need a break, mm-hmm. you know, because it is, it's a, it's a hard job to to be always aware and and always looking at these symptoms, it it is a challenge, you know, and I think we have to validate too for ourselves and for other people that, 
we're not here because we want to be, you know, we're, we're doing what we have to do to survive because we're worthy. We're valuable. Our, our lives are important and we deserve to have a life with some hope and some joy in it. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And, and there are solutions. There are things that help. Um, it just takes practice. It's just like with anything, it takes practice. It takes some time, but, but you can have a great life. You can have a wonderful life worth living when you build those tools and, and in the process of building those tools, you'll learn a lot about yourself too. I think that's a wonderful stopping point for us today. And uh, yeah, we could easily go another like hour or two hours on, <laughs> on more of the bipolar and BPD um, stuff and, and especially disassociating. And But um, yeah, I think that's a good place to stop today, maybe in like a month or whenever you, you know, That'd whenever you would be down to do it again. I would absolutely love to have you on. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much for everything yes, that you I do. Am- I appreciate it. Great conversation. I really enjoyed this time. And and awesome. seriously, we will definitely have to do this again. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, we still got a lot to, uh, to, to go into. So <laughs> yeah. I think everybody that's listening to this will hopefully be excited for that next one to drop. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. All right, guys. Was Jade amazing or was she amazing? Think of that as like part one, because there are so many different things that came up as soon as we stopped recording. Then I was like, oh, damn, I wish I would have asked her this. And Oh, man, I got to ask her this. And so in about a month or whenever her schedule permits, we're going to be more than happy to have her back on because there are so many different little wormholes and rabbit holes that I want to go down. And once I get going, it's like, oh, man, I got I had I had 50 questions that I didn't even get to. And the thing is, a lot of this is unscripted. So then as we're going, my brain just bounces around and uh even like if i had three questions written down i might not have even gotten to like the second or third ones because i've had 50 questions pop up between the start of the interview and where we end but we covered a lot of ground there please 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 check out any of the resources that she laid out um if you want to learn more about borderline personality disorder or if you are just generally interested in somebody that you know and you want to learn a better way to connect with them or or try to get a better understanding of what they're going through then please check out any of the authors or the books or the resources that she listed there Um, i highly recommend you check out her website as well she does offer coaching services so if you're at the point where you're ready to really commit and dive into getting better then I would highly recommend working with her. I mean, as if, if that serves as a preview of what working with her would be like, I mean, that's essentially what we did. We just workshopped, you know, both of us and, and me and her, and uh, it was awesome. It was amazing. So I really feel really, really good after completing that, and I can't wait to speak to her again. So I hope you guys will be back for that episode. I hope you'll be back next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review to the show. Um, please follow along on social media at BennyTomp18 and at RealTalkWBennyT. And you can find any of the interviews or episodes or anything else that we are sharing at all of those different handles. So uh, I will be back next week. I'm not sure if we're, uh, I'll keep you updated on the car situation. So it may not be Uber stories. It may be just another interview. And I'm totally cool with that. You know, I think that um, between the quality of, of the interview and the guests that I'm bringing on, I would like to do the Uber stories and the interviews, but in the event that I'm having car troubles and I can't do the Uber stories, then we'll just do interviews. And I 
really, really hope that you will find those useful and insightful and helpful because that's what we're here to do. I'm back next Wednesday. I'm Ben Tompkins. That's Real Talk. 